This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. We are in the third Sunday of Advent, and today we're going to be talking about how to glorify God and how to have joy in Him. Gatorade has a commercial this year, and I'm going to be honest with you, I actually don't see a whole lot of commercials anymore, uh, except for maybe those on YouTube, uh, because of all, of all the streaming services. However, I did see this commercial, uh, and it was, it was a few months back, um, I don't know if it's still playing, but it goes like this. They asked the question, what if? What if you could go further, jump higher, or run the whole thing, and it's referring to a business? What if we could be who we're meant to be? This could all happen if we're given the chance to play and become who we look up to. That's when we find our stride. Gatorade in this commercial says at the end that they're committed to giving millions of, uh, I think we're reflecting on children in the thing, though they don't say it, millions the chance to play, the chance to become who they were born to be, who they were meant to be. Do you know what you were made to do? Are you doing it now? How do you know? For some of you right now, I'm sure you feel an unbelievable amount of fulfillment in your life. You got the grades you were looking for into the college you wanted. Your job is doing great. Family is strong and healthy. 2022 has been the best year yet. And honestly, there's not a doubt in your mind that you're doing exactly what the Lord wants you to do. Some of you, on the other hand, have doubts. You missed that chance. You made career changes that aren't going the way that you thought. Doors were shut. Are you really doing what you were made to do? Now, I will say, if you're one of those who believes that you're doing exactly what you're meant to do and you're finding an abundance of fulfillment about that, I would invite you to talk to somebody with a little bit more gray hair, and they'll probably remind you how fickle that feeling is, because it's just a feeling that comes and goes. And they would hopefully tell you this not to tear you down, but because wisdom says that you can't possibly sustain this feeling of fulfillment throughout your entire life. The Bible, however, says that you were made for a particular purpose, a particular purpose that will bring you the best fulfillment, make you truly human in all that you were supposed to be. It makes claims about that. And our catechism kind of summarizes some of these claims. It says, what is the chief end of man, which is a weird way of saying, what are you here for? What are you supposed to do? And it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If you want to be fulfilled, you have to glorify God. Now, that seems overly simplistic, and maybe you're a little bit worried right now because you're thinking you're going to hear some simplistic, moralistic sermon about how to be better. Uh, and in some sense, we're going to be talking about the law of God. But the Bible is not just a moral lesson. The Bible wants to transform your idea of what fulfillment and joy actually is. So today, as we study how to glorify God, we're going to learn that we need to glorify God, we need to think smaller. We need to think smaller. Because I got to be honest, God's idea of thriving, of our purpose in our lives is far more humble than we would be willing to accept. So humble, in fact, that it is almost offensive. But it is also what we were made for. Because we believe, like the Gatorade commercial, when we find what we were born to do, we'll finally find the fullest version of ourselves. We'll finally be fully human, not just surviving, but we'll be thriving. And so our sermon today actually comes from our Advent candle reading, 
where we follow these shepherds. I'm not going to reread the passage for us. Um, It's actually printed in your bulletin twice. You can find it in the sermon section. And we're going to start walking through this text together. The shepherds were out in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And these shepherds, they receive an announcement that took them from just surviving to thriving. They learned how to glorify God, and they had to learn how to do it by thinking a little bit smaller. Now, what's going to guide us uh, in our conversation today about how to glorify God is three points. So if you're note takers, uh, our three points today are going to be to glorify God, we have to hear, we have to believe, and we have to tell. We have to hear, we have to believe, and we have to tell. So first, we have to hear. In order to glorify God, we have to hear. Uh, Last week, we had a huge celebration with our sister church, La Travesia, and there were some friends from South Florida in town um, staying with us, and I was driving them to the airport on Monday, uh, last Monday, and they were sitting in SJU, engrossed in a conversation, and so engrossed, they missed an announcement over the loudspeaker that their gate had changed. They were so engrossed and so like, well, I don't know, nobody's lining up yet, that they actually missed their flight and had to find another one. They needed to hear an announcement. The first thing we see about these shepherds is that they needed to hear the announcement that was before them. Here they were in verse 8, in the region where Jesus was to be born, if you were to read back a little bit before in chapter 2. They were keeping watch over their flock by night, and suddenly an announcement was made, first by one angel and then by many. Now, to understand why hearing is so important and why I paused at hearing, we've got to understand two things that we kind of get wrong in our culture about this passage. Like, we, we, we glorify two aspects, and one is angels. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on angels, but suffice it to say that they are not cute, naked babies shooting love arrows. It's not how the Bible describes angels. If that's how you think the Bible describes angels, it's wrong. And if you read in this passage, you can figure that out. One angel shows up to a group of shepherds who were probably used to fighting off wolves and other like creatures. They were used to some amount of danger. They were terrified in verse 9, filled with great fear. But it's not just the angels that we tend to misunderstand in our culture. It's also shepherds. Sometimes we think of shepherds as kind of this glorified um, occupation and calling Because we know the biblical story and how it uses shepherds like David, um, and Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. But in reality, shepherds were the equivalent, especially these shepherds were the equivalent of a graveyard shift at a gas station in a podunk town in middle America. Now, my wife and I are both from, I'm from Kansas and she's from Iowa. We have small town gas stations that inexplicably have somebody at midnight there at the counter. Not where you want to be. Now, we don't Uh, directly demean those who work graveyard shifts in podunk towns at gas stations, but none of us necessarily aspires to work those jobs, right? It's because we know that nothing necessarily exciting or good happens there. Nothing's supposed to happen at those shifts except for maybe violence and danger. There's no glory. Glory happens at the mountaintop experiences, at the top of high-rise buildings, in government buildings that are big and luxurious. That's where important things happen. Not the graveyard shift at a gas station in a podunk town. But the first thing we need to understand in order to glorify God is that we need to hear his message in the middle of our mundane lives. The shepherds are just working their jobs in the middle of the night, and God shows up. In the middle of our mundane lives, Jesus arrives. Just think about some of his disciples. It was while the disciples were fishing, 
and while you're mowing the lawn. It's while the disciples were walking along the path and while you're sitting on an airplane or traveling through the airport. It's while the woman was fetching water and while you're changing diapers. It was while Matthew was working collecting taxes and while you're pouring over P&Ls for next year's budget. There is no place too mundane for God. God pursues you with an announcement of great joy even though you're boring. You've never felt boring? I think all of us feel boring, right? And we think God can't possibly be meeting me here, and we spin our wheels thinking, what am I really supposed to be doing with my life? And even right there, God comes with an announcement. Good news of great joy. Now here's how you hear this announcement. You saturate yourself with his word so that when you're mowing lawn and changing diapers and pouring over the P&Ls and you're in the boring, mundane part of your life, God's word is saturated around your life. Here's how the Bible tends to talk about it. It says, you should saturate yourself with God's word when you rise and when you sit, when you go by the road and when you teach your children. It feels so mundane, so everyday, so boring that it's almost embarrassing. But this glorifies God. It's what we were made to do first way that we glorify God is by hearing his words. But that kind of immediately begs the question as these uh, shepherds are there in the field, right? They hear the announcement, but what is the announcement? What's the content? What exactly is so good about it? And that takes us to our second point. They have to believe that the news is good. You know, for my friends at the airport, it wouldn't have done them any good to hear the announcement over the loudspeaker of their gate change and not act accordingly. And you know what's something fascinating about the whole thing is that their app and their boarding pass told a different story. It said that they were at the right gate, but the announcement over the loudspeaker was telling a different story. Who do you think they should have believed? God's word tells a different story. And our apps and the paper in front of us, the things that our world builds, it, it points us in one direction. And it's not the direction we were made for. Not lasting fulfillment. You cannot just say that you believe in Jesus and go on business as usual. You can't just sit there in your chair at the gate and expect the gate to come to you. The announcement comes over the loudspeaker. My friends you need to get up and go to the other side of the airport to get to the correct gate. Their life needed to change. Has your life changed? I think for most of us, we hear that and we actually feel immediately a lot of shame. We know that our lives haven't changed like the way that we want them to. We read God's word and we know that it does not align. How did these shepherds' lives change? These shepherds were declared a promise that a king was coming who was finally going to bring them peace. Good news of great joy for all people, verse 10. And so in verse 15 they said, let us go and see this thing that has happened. The shepherds could have ignored the announcement and said, man, that was weird, and gone back to work. And that's what a lot of people do when they hear the announcement over the loudspeaker of God's word. They're like, man, that was a little interesting, but I'll just go back to work. But they didn't. They said, actually, I need to go see this thing that has happened. And the fascinating thing about how the shepherds talk is that it's not something that they have to go do, as if their going somehow made the action happen. It was already done for them. 
The announcement of good news for you is not shame that you have to be better so that God will love you. The announcement of good news of great joy is that God already loves you. And he says, run to Jesus. If your announcement in your life doesn't reorient you to point towards Jesus, then you're like someone sitting at the airport who hears the announcement and chooses to believe that the piece of paper they're holding is more correct. If you really do believe, you're going to have to bring your life into alignment with this new reality. You're going to have to get up out of your seat, cross the airport, find the new gate, and see that it is actually true. What does this look like in the Christian life? Repenting from your old way of life and turning towards a new one. Now, here's the thing. A lot of times we think that this happens once. You're like, I've I've believed, I've prayed the prayer, I've been baptized, pastor. But repentance and clinging unto new life is something that we do every single day, every single hour, and every single minute. In some sense, if I can stretch the airport analogy, right, will we get distracted by shops along the way to our new gate? Probably. Will accidents slow us down and distract us? Most certainly. Will there be unfamiliar sections of the Christian life where you have to ask for direction? Yes. But we not only hear this announcement, we believe it to be true, and we go and see it for ourselves. Now, there's one more thing about this belief. When the shepherds go, they were promised something immense, right? A kingdom of peace for all people. And they go to a cattle stall, and they see a baby laid in a manger. I mean, babies aren't exactly fantastic rulers, and even if it's a baby born that's supposed to be a ruler, they're definitely not born in cattle stalls. And in some sense, depending on how old these shepherds were, they could probably look at this baby, and even if they really truly believed that this baby was going to be the promised king, they might be dead by the time that he is the king. The fullness of redemption was promised to these shepherds, but their experience was partial fulfillment. Everything that was told to them was true. They were told that they would find a baby lying in a manger. That would be the sign to them that the king was coming. And they went and they found, exactly as they had been told, a baby lying in a manger. But the full fulfillment, overflowing joy that was coming in peace was further than their lifetimes. And that might be true with us. We have the fullness of redemption promised, of every tear wiped away, of every wrong righted, but our experience of this redemption is partial here and now. And it's important for us to realize, both from the inside and from the outside, when sins beset us, from the inside, when we sin, we have to realize that actually this fulfillment is partial and we're not quite yet wiped clean of our sin. And so when we get distracted along the way, we always can repent and turn back to Jesus. That announcement is still being declared over and over and over again. And we choose to believe every single day. But when pain set us from the outside, We can also cling to partial fulfillments of promises, knowing that the day will indeed come because everything else he's told us in this book has been true. It was exactly how he said it would be. He will not fail his promises. The fulfillment will one day come, and he will indeed wipe away every tear. So in order to glorify God, we need to hear the announcement, and we need to believe this good news of great joy by submitting our lives to his rule there's one more thing that we need to do to glorify God, and that is to tell. Again, we could continue my analogy with my friends in the airport. If one friend had heard the announcement and believed it, 
you would expect him to tell his friend, right, <laughs> who he knew was on the same flight, like, hey, we're about to miss our flight, let's go. <clears throat> These shepherds heard and believed this message in verses 10 through 14. They declared it to one another in verse 15. They didn't stop there. When they looked for this king, they found him. And when they saw him, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And then verse 18 and verse 20, they glorified and they praised. Now, I think that this point is relatively self-explanatory. If we hear the announcement of good news, believe it to be true, and find partial fulfillment in our lives, we ought to tell others. But telling others is kind of hard, and I think we learn something actually profound from the shepherds here, how they tell others. They told others in verses 17 and 18 and 20, all that had been told to them. There's this word to them. It's, the two is not always there in English, but um, it's, it's to say it's their story. Concerning who, verse 17, this child. They told their story concerning Jesus. When we tell others about this good news of great joy, we tell our story concerning Jesus. Where's the good news of great joy unfolding in your life? Where are the fruits of the Spirit? And I'm not just talking about a superficial morality here either. Jesus made me a better person, but so what? Not just that Jesus delivered you from pornography, but Jesus is restoring in you a dignity and respect for the female body and the use of your own sexuality. Not just that Jesus has delivered you from despair, but that Jesus is confirming his promises to you day by day to restore everything that was lost. Not just that Jesus has helped your rage, but that Jesus is giving you peace, that you no longer have to fight for number one because Jesus fights for you. Not just that Jesus has helped you with your eating disorder, but that Jesus is restoring in you a healthy relationship to food. Your story concerning Jesus. Because here's what I think happens in a lot of our like, Christian um, subculture that we develop. When we tell people all of our stories, we want like, some, some method, you know, the Evangel Cube or the Romans Road. And here's the deal. Like, these things are good evangelistic methods that God uses. But if you want to know the most powerful way to evangelize, the most, apolog the most um, pure apologetic for the Christian faith, it is your story concerning Jesus. Now, it is vulnerable you might have people deny your experience or say that it was just coincidence or that you're just believing what you want to to fit your own presuppositions. And I'm sure that many of the people that wondered at the shepherds said the same things to them. But what they shared was what they themselves experienced when they went to go meet Jesus Christ. It was personal, it was specific, and it was Christ-centered. Do you have a story like that? And not just one story about the time you became a Christian. Are you constantly looking for that story to recur in your life over and over and over and over again, day by day, hour by hour, so that you could tell that story of God's faithfulness to others around you? Of course, we want angels to show up in the middle of the night, like the shepherds did. You might be reading the story and you're thinking, you know, Zach, they, they had angels show up. I don't have angels show up in my life. Um, my life is far more mundane. And I would refer you back to our first point. God loves to work through the mundane. Don't ever think that you must embellish your story 
or just focused on the high mountaintop experiences or something fantastic, your story is actually powerful enough the way that God made it because God wrote it. The day-by-day repentance unto new life is God's work. So in order to glorify God, we have to hear, we have to believe, and we have to tell. Now, you might be asking yourself whether or not the shepherds doing all of these things actually found fulfillment. Like we started this sermon, we asked, like, are you doing what you were made to do? And did the shepherds actually feel that they were doing what they were made to do? And I mean, let's just look at the story real quick and break it down. The shepherds saw a multitude of angels. They heard an unbelievable declaration of peace. They went and they saw the king of the universe as a baby. They told others what they were told, and then they went back to work. Isn't that how the Christian life feels? We hear an announcement and declaration, and we get a glimpse of Jesus, and we share it with some other people, and then we go back to work. Life moves on. The answer to our question about whether or not the the shepherds found ultimate fulfillment by doing these things is actually partially no. And you might be wondering to yourself at this point, then what have we spent the last 20 minutes doing? They didn't find their purpose in glorifying God because they didn't actually have what it took to glorify God. And neither do you. We don't hear the announcement because as the Bible describes, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And when you're dead, you can't hear, believe, or tell others. You cannot glorify God when you're dead. The story of the Bible is that you actually do not have what it takes to do what you were born to do. The story of the Bible is that you need someone else to do it for you. And when you're transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, you'll find that he's calling you to do exactly what you were born to do, and it's far more humble than you would have ever thought, and yet far more glorious than you would have ever imagined. And as an analogy, I'd like to talk to you about the movie Rudy. Now, if you haven't seen this movie from 1993, I'm about to give you some major spoilers, but it is 30 years old, people. Almost, almost 30 Rudy Rudiger was born in 1948, and he grew grew up in Joliet, Illinois, and all he ever wanted to do was play for Notre Dame. He wanted to play football for Notre Dame. That's what he thought he was born to do. There was just one problem. Rudy had a learning disability, so he had bad grades, and he was like 5'7 and 165 pounds. Not a good option to play football for Notre Dame. He did not have what it took to do what he thought he was born to do. And for all of our American stories of hard work and determination and of picking ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we recognize that sometimes you just don't have what it takes. And most of us actually probably run into that with sports. We have some dreams as a a child of being some professional elite player, and then we hit reality of we don't actually have what it takes. Zach Lutz is not going to play professional basketball. It's just not going to happen. I find it somewhat ironic that Rudy, this movie that we kind of symbolize of hard work and determination, is actually quite blatant about this reality being true. Rudy did not have what it took. He needed to be transformed by the grace of somebody else. Now, the movie dramatizes this scene a little, but in an interview with the real Rudy Rudiger, he says that the only way that he got to actually dress for a Notre Dame game his last, um, in his senior year, was the grace of his coach. He was shown grace that he did not deserve, that transformed him from someone unworthy to someone who wore the uniform. Rudy believed that he was born to play for Notre Dame. When the time came, he was overjoyed just to be invited to stand on the sidelines with the team 
to be listed on the roster. But his joy was about to be even more increased because, again, by the grace of his coach, Rudy would play, not just as a name on the roster, but he would actually put his feet on the field to do what he was born to do. And in the movie, you can see his joy. He runs out there, and the crowd's like screaming. They've been chanting his name, and he has no idea where to stand. And the players are like, stand here. After the first play, he yells to his coach, what do I do? And the coach is like, stay out there. And in some ways, this is the Christian life. We're transformed by the grace of someone else. We put on a jersey that we don't deserve to wear. We hear an announcement and we believe it. And we try our entire lives to bring our, bring our entire lives into subjection to this new reality. We tell others along the way and we're honored to just be on the same team as Jesus. But his grace doesn't stop there. He invites us onto the field. And we have no idea where to stand or what to do. And Jesus has to help us out. The Bible talks about God preparing good works beforehand for us to do. And when the Bible says good works, it really means it. It means that you, here and now, by God's grace, have good works that have eternal significance in his kingdom. And they're far more humble than you might want and far more glorious than you could possibly ever expect. In the middle of our mundane lives, we hear, believe, and we tell others. There's a supernatural calling that every Christian has that will be truly fulfilling. And on this side of heaven, it might feel relatively insignificant. And that's the amazing thing about Rudy's story. Because see, Rudy goes out there next to all the other players and his friends like, he's so little because he is. He's about to get crushed by some other players. And in the final play of the game, Rudy sacks the quarterback. He played for Notre Dame and does what he was born to do. And the crowd goes wild and his teammates carry him off the field. But here's the amazing thing. If you see an interview with his actual teammates, like the real, the real life teammates, they'll all acknowledge he didn't deserve to be out there. And the only reason he got to go out there is because they were so far ahead that even Rudy couldn't screw it up. His entire moment of joy was utterly dependent upon the hard work of other people who deserved to be there. His 30 seconds of fame were entirely dependent upon Jerome Havens, who had scored two touchdowns earlier in the game. Although Rudy was the one to make the tackle, the sack in the backfield, there was a defensive tackle named Nick Fedorenko. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I wrote it down here. Who already had the quarterback by the legs. <laughs> Rudy comes across the top to tackle him. It's credited with the, the sack. This game was entirely about other people. His team did all of the work, but Rudy got 30 seconds of real joy with 60,000 fans supporting him. And he could have told himself that what he did was insignificant and no big deal, but it really mattered. Again, the game was entirely about other people, but Rudy left transformed by a grace that he did not deserve. The story of all creation is about Jesus. He does all the work. He has what it takes to make the team. He has what it takes to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. He has what it takes to find fulfillment in glorifying God. And what he does is condescend down to us to deliver us from death. And he announces to us in the darkness of night these promises, good news of great joy. And he puts a uniform on us that we don't deserve to wear. And so we join in this practice of hearing, believing, and telling and suddenly, in the middle of the mundane, Jesus brings us into the game for truly good works. And I don't know what these good works are for you. God is doing truly good works everywhere in and through his people. 
through art and dance, through business and investments, through parenting and friendships, through playing and hiking, through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Yes, I'm still on the fruits of the Spirit bit. In these seemingly insignificant acts of grace, the unthinkable happens. Because although the game is already won, and although our tackle is somewhat redundant, because Jesus has already got our enemies wrapped up by the ankles, we really and truly participate in this story that is about someone else. And we really and truly find fulfillment glorifying God. The shepherds were invited into a story that someone else wrote, and they heard, they believed, and they told others. They had already been shown grace beyond their wildest dreams when a host of angels showed up and declared to them, good news, you will be delivered. For all that they had heard and seen, they gave thanks to God. Those shepherds' lives, the graveyard shifts in a podunk town at a gas station, they were transformed by grace even though they would go back to those same jobs again. The announcement of good news, of great joy, is an announcement that 2,000 years ago, the story of humanity was rewritten. And when it was rewritten, it was written with you in it. Maybe 30 seconds of seeming insignificance in a story totally about someone else. But 30 seconds that really matter, that really glorify God, that really bring you fulfillment. That's what you were made to do. Now, Jesus didn't just invite us into his story through a declaration of words. He didn't just announce it uh, on the rooftops to his disciples, but he invited them to a meal at his table because he knew that he was going to be leaving for some time, and they were going to have questions and doubts about where they stood when um, the sins from the inside and from the outside oppressed them. And he gave them a meal to remind them of the truth of these promises, about how effective his body and his blood really is to redeem them and write them into a new story of fulfillment. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. This meal instituted by Jesus himself is a partial fulfillment of a full fulfillment that is to come, of a feast at a table with him and with 60,000 more and more, millions upon millions of other supporters who see our all kind of puny 30 seconds of fame and celebrate with us. When Jesus looks at us and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, who is this meal for? This is a meal for those who have experienced transforming grace of Jesus who have heard and believed the words of God. And if this is true for you, then this table is for you to partake of his body and his blood. If this isn't true for you, if you're not sure what you believe about his words, if you haven't submitted your life to him in belief and been baptized into his name, we'd ask you to refrain from participation in this meal, not because we don't want you here, um, but because Jesus himself gives specific instructions about uh, how to take this meal in relationship to the belief in his words. If you've got questions about that, I would like to refer you, one, to a prayer in your bulletin, but also to talk to myself or Kyle or any of our staff. We would love to answer any questions that you have about 
um, belief in Jesus Christ. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. We can go to these two serving stations on my right and my left. If you require gluten-free, you're going to want to go to uh, my left, your right, and then there will be red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, you sent us your Son to announce good news of great joy, that we were going to be redeemed. Jesus, you have indeed redeemed us by your body and your blood, your very sacrifice, transforming grace. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform these common elements to their supernatural use. And then by your word and this sacrament, you would allow our lives to be transformed by that grace that we didn't deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.